0: passage, and yet it's still just as confounding as any longer one. Because as we said last week, when we were discussing the passage in Exodus, where it accounts for eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, stripe for stripe, wound for wound, and many others, we wrestled with the fact that instead of being the standard by which we should penalize each other, it was actually meant to be the way in which God's people sought to make reparations and be reconciled. That the idea that you would give back exactly what you had taken and what it was worth was the point of the passage. Not, you've hurt me, so I get to hurt you that much. The world would be a very dark and demented place, if that's how we wanted to live out our call for discipleship. Well, today, in this passage that you heard, Jesus is speaking not only to his apostles, but he's talking to the crowds. This is actually the part of Matthew where Jesus has just finished the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who mourn. And he goes through this long list of people that nobody thinks are truly blessed, and then says that they are blessed and that they will be blessed. And then he has some lessons for those of us who will listen to him. And he begins these lessons at verse 17, saying, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. And then he starts this line of, you have heard it said. And he goes through five different things, you have heard it said. And what he's doing is, he's reflecting for those who are listening that he is not here to wipe away everything that God the Father had done in the Torah and in the prophetic word, both spoken and written, but instead he's come to take them deeper in their faith. They were standing on the shore kind of watching, and Jesus is inviting them to go very deep in their faith, in their relationship with God and one another. But in order to do that, they don't just read the law as, well, we go this far and no further. Instead, they have to look at how they can actually embody the spirit of what God was saying. And so it starts out by saying, you've heard it said that those of of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment." And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to counsel. Everybody thought they were fine. Well, I haven't murdered anybody. I hate people. I'm really angry at these people. But I haven't killed them yet. Therefore, I'm okay. And Jesus says, no, that is not what living in community and in right relationship looks like. Instead, we are called to be attentive to the things that go unsaid and the things that are overly said. And the things that are said that cause pain and suffering. We are instead to focus on the relationship and being in right relationship with each other. That's why Jesus goes on to say, You have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's where he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. That sometimes we have to be willing to go without so that we don't subvert the spirit in which our relationships are held. That it's not enough to simply say, well, I have these feelings, but I'm not acting them out right now. We need to work to resolve sinful inclinations and those emotions and those feelings. Because Jesus knows that if we wait long enough, those emotions that we're projecting outward but seeming to rein in with our actions will have form. And so he invites people to focus on those things. And if those sinful inclinations are becoming all-consuming, then we have to change the way we are and the way we live so that we don't enact them. And then he gets to, You have heard it said of those of ancient times, You shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all none of us have ever said, I swear, right? I swear I didn't do it. I swear I did that, or I swear I was going to do it. We're not supposed to be swearing. Instead, Jesus says, let your word be what your word is. Yes means yes, and no means no, and you don't have to swear by anything. And then he gets to, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And then Jesus says words that most of Christendom has wrestled with because it sounds very problematic, do not resist an evildoer, but if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. Does this mean that we're all supposed to be victims? Does this mean that all of Christendom is about being milk toast, so that people walk all over us, they abuse us, and they continue to perpetuate sin and harm and suffering in the world? I don't know about you, but my mama didn't raise any milk toast. And so, no, I don't think that's what the world is saying, that we need to be. And I also don't think that that's what Jesus expected. Jesus had some pretty salty disciples. You don't get a bunch of fishermen and a bunch of tax collectors together and not expect some feisty personalities to emerge. Instead, he was telling them to focus on something different. But why? Why should we be focusing on anything else, right? We're not supposed to perpetuate sin. When the children come back, I'm going to ask them by a show of hands, has anyone ever hurt you? I suspect that everyone will raise their hand, that someone has hit them or someone has said something that has hurt them. Let's be honest. Sometimes you say something, you hurt somebody. Sometimes you don't say something, you hurt somebody. You try to help, you hurt. And so the world is a constant battleground for not causing harm. It's a struggle. And so the children recognize that. And they recognize that in one way, we are telling them not to continue the cycle of pain. They recognize that. You know, if one of the kids were to bump into me, I'm not supposed to turn around and shove the kid down. Instead, we go, oh, you know, are you okay? You bumped into me. Or why are you shoving somebody in eight-inch heels? That's kind of rude. You know, we we have these conversations. We don't encourage it. And one of the children at 930, God love this child, said, well, that just has a cycle of hurt. Yes, it does. And if a child can understand that, what is our problem? What is our problem? We continue a cycle. Now, adults, most of the time, we refrain from getting into fistfights with each other. However, we do continue a cycle of verbal and emotional pain. We continue that cycle. And Jesus says, don't do that. Don't do that. If someone strikes my right cheek and they turn my head, Jesus tells me to turn the other cheek. There are plenty of theologians and scholars who wanted to argue that what Jesus was saying was like, I dare you, do it again. I don't think that's what Jesus was doing. I don't think Jesus did that at all in Jesus' ministry. In fact, Jesus spent three years not hurting people with his body, with his power, with his words. Now, some people take offense at what Jesus said, but as, again, my mother would say, a hit dog hollers. Right. Sometimes it hurts to hear your sins in Jesus' name. However, Jesus was not there to cause pain and suffering. Jesus came to bring healing and wholeness. And so as Jesus was trying to tell people, he tells them very specifically, turn the other cheek. If I'm facing this way because you've slapped me, silly, then when I go to turn back, I have to face you at some point. At some point, I'm now oriented back to you, which means that I have the opportunity to acknowledge you and so often in this world we need somebody to acknowledge have you ever had somebody in your life that was having a bad day everything was wrong you couldn't do anything right nobody could do anything right everything made them grumpy they were lashing out verbally they may have been throwing things who knows usually this happens on mondays because people get a case of the mondays however when that happens you're like you know what Something's going on here. its I don't think it's really me. I think it's you or something that's going on, and I'll see you on Wednesday. You can work this out. Jesus wants us to stop and say, what is really happening here? We live in a society where there are limitless numbers of adults who are walking around with pain and suffering that they received in their childhood, in their teenage years, as young adults, and they're carrying it around. And sometimes, like those sinful inclinations Jesus was talking about, they get unleashed out into the world. Now, we could immediately take offense of, you clearly hate me and are trying to destroy me. Or we could say, what is really going on here? What is going on? Why are you acting like this to me? Have I done something? How can I fix that? Have I offended you in some way? I'm not trying to offend you. What is really going on? Now, that person may choose to tell you what's going on. That person may not be able to articulate what's going on. But we still stop and acknowledge. And I think almost every adult has the time in your life where you just need someone to acknowledge your pain and suffering. You just need someone to recognize that you are not whole and right. Now, if you come by the church office during the week, you will hear me yell. It's very cathartic to yell. It's very cathartic. And I have been given the diaphragm with which to yell. And so I feel like it would be very rude to God not to use all that God has given me. And so I yell. However, I am not yelling at anyone. And God help you if you show up and yell at any of my people in the office. You don't get to yell at Linda. You don't get to yell at Amy or Kelly. If you do, then I will invite you to come into my office where I will take up the mantle of yelling with you. Mostly at you. Because we're not going to do that. We're not going to visit our pain on other people. But my staff knows that sometimes you just need to yell, why is this happening? What is going on? I can't believe this is happening. And it's not that you necessarily want somebody to fix it. You don't want somebody to meddle. You don't want somebody to give you some kind of words from on high. You just want someone to hear you. Hear me, O oh Lord, right? Hear me. Let someone recognize that I, your servant, am suffering. Now, half the time, I might be suffering because of something I said or did. But I just still need somebody to recognize that I'm suffering. I just need somebody to to give me a moment and go, I hear you. I receive that. And half the time, I don't want them to fix it because I have work to do. But we have work that we're going to do as a community. And we need to recognize when we continually do things that cause pain and suffering. And so we air that in appropriate ways. And then afterwards, I remind everybody in the office that I'm not yelling at them, that I love them very much, and I'm going to go back and have another cup of coffee. This is how we do things. Because there is power in voicing your pain. There is power in voicing your pain. You know this. You have seen this. It is in your mind. Because when someone dies and you are mourning that loss, Do we not gather at funerals and in services of death and resurrection and memorial services and there through song and prayer and our tributes to the life of the person that is gone, we voice our pain, not only to one another, to the community, but to God on high that we are suffering and we just need to let everyone know that we are suffering because of this loss. We do this for other things. We have support groups. We have meetings and where people can come and they can emotionally and verbally dump all the baggage and just lay it out. Not because you expect somebody to dissect it and pick it up and give it back to you restored, but because sometimes there is just something in naming it. In naming it. That's why there's an entire book called Lamentations where all the people of Israel lament their broken and their exiled state. Because they just had to say it. And God not only wants us to say it, but God encourages us to say it by preserving those laments forever in our scripture. It's okay to say it. It's not okay to take it out on somebody. That's the difference. It's not okay. And so we are, we're looking for that moment where we can Get to the root of what's happening or what is going on here. And sometimes when you're turning and you face the person, maybe it's 30 seconds to get to the root of it. Maybe it's going to take you three minutes, 30 days, 30 years. But Jesus is inviting us to turn and to engage the person who has hurt us. Figuratively, literally, emotionally, verbally, spiritually, inviting us to Stop there for just a moment and engage them. Because living in community is hard. At no point in Scripture does God call any of us to be lone rangers and off on our own. Do you notice that? Either we are off communing with God, which is God then is going to come back and send you out to a bunch of people, so be careful about those moments. Or God is sending people out in pairs, in groups. Even Jesus did this. All right, pair up, go out, heal in my name. And t- time and time again, we are asked to do things in community. Jesus recognizes this because Jesus says, wherever two or more of you are together, there I am. There I am. I'm not hanging around with you one on one You have to do this in community because God knows that we can't do this alone. We have to do it together. Being a disciple is exhausting. It is difficult. It is heart." hurtingly hard. It is so hard to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And Jesus knows this, so Jesus commanded that we would be in community, even if it's just with one other person in Jesus, knowing that it would take that. So when we feel that moment where we want to lash out and we've turned back and we face the person, that's when Jesus invites us to use the gift of community. Have somebody that you can talk to. Have somebody who can tell you to Rain in that wrath. Have somebody that can hear your heartache and your suffering and someone who can stand with you if that's what you need because it's not that we're supposed to let somebody pound on us time and time again. Jesus didn't come so that we could suffer more. Jesus came so that we could stop the cycle of suffering, that we could liberate people who feel oppressed and hurt and battered down day after day after day. Not to say to the world, it's okay to keep beating on my people. It's fine. It's all good. Hedge of protection. That's not what Jesus says. Time and time again, Jesus asks us to uphold one another, to support one another, to walk side by side and be invested. Because the day comes in every family of faith when we will not agree. And I'm not just talking about y'all and me. I'm talking about all of us. There will be things that will threaten to divide us, to tear us apart. Some of us will feel so passionately on one side and others will feel just as passionately on the other. And we will have to figure out how to stand together. And if we resort to the earthly way of hitting each other across the face, then we destroy the grace of the cross. We destroy everything that God has done for us. Instead, Jesus says, when you feel abused, when you feel slapped, turn back. But don't stop there. Turn the other cheek. Turn the other cheek. And where? Now what? What do I look to now? Psalm 121. We read it at funerals and it says, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. We are invited at the end of that rotation to always look to God. Because there are moments where if you're like me, I see you. And now I'm going to pray to God that I don't turn around with a right hook. There are others of us that have to turn to God to say, God, I feel like I am going to wither and waste away till nothing. I cannot stand before this persecution. Or God, I cannot live like this any longer. I feel abused and abandoned. God, I need your strength right now. That's why that psalm exists, to remind us at the end of the day to turn our eyes away From the persecution and away from the pain and even if it's for just a moment for strength and comfort and perseverance we lift our eyes to the hills and we are so blessed in Crozet we can literally look at the hills we can literally look there and sometimes you just have to have that moment all right and some of us will turn and look at the hills for strength Some of us will turn and look at the hills for restraint. Some of us will turn and look at the hills in order to hear what God would have us say or do or not say or not do. And together we figure out what that is. Because at the end of the day, when our orientation and our rotation directs us to God, we will not fall to the suffering and the pain. If we fail to continually direct our eyes back to God then we will be consumed with what we think is right, what we feel we should do, how we should respond or God forbid, what my best friend who always has my back and isn't really good at critiquing me says I should say and do or what I read on the internet we are doing now or posting on the internet what I think we should do now. Instead when we turn our eyes to Jesus Christ and we look at the hills and we pause and we pray and we discern God sends to us the spirit of peace. And every single person in our family faith in the body of Christ has a role in that. There are some of us who the moment we find out about injustice, we burn with righteous anger and we are ready to go toe-to-toe and eye-to-eye. We're ready. Where is it? I got this one. Then there are others, and the world may call them milk toast. Their hearts are so big and so compassionate. They empathize to the nth degree and their hearts just melt with the pain and the suffering of this world. And those people are able to provide a critique for the people who are ready to go toe-to-toe with Goliath. We are able together to restrain and empower. We are able together to encourage and equip. Together we make a better disciple than if we're just one way or the other. Together we reflect Jesus Christ, who stood up for the oppressed, who wasn't afraid to speak God's truth and love to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who, by the way, spent his entire earthly ministry trying to trap him. Three years Jesus had on this earth in ministry. Three years. He didn't spend a lot of time going, I got only three years. Let me tell you a bunch of things that none of you will ever apply. I got a bunch of things to say, and none of them are really applicable. So let's just suffer through this if Jesus said it, we need to hear it. If Jesus is telling us that we should not be resisting an evildoer but turning the cheek to engage, if Jesus is inviting us together to find a new way to resist evil, then who are we to silence his words? Who are we to gloss over them Because oftentimes what happens is somebody brings up eye for an eye, and we go, oh, but Jesus said don't resist an an evildoer. Jesus Jesus nullified that. By the way, did you notice he never uses the word nullified? I have come to nullify the prophets. He doesn't say that. I am here in the fulfillment. If you listen and you do what I have done, if you hear my words and you live them out, then all of the law will be fulfilled in you. And that day is something that every Christian should yearn for. Because the day that the law is fulfilled, there will be no hunger. There will be no thirst. There will be no pain or sickness or suffering. There will be no naked or ashamed. There will be no people who are alone and abandoned and shunned. Is that not the day that you want to see? Is that not what we live for and why we have our faith? Because there is a day where we want all suffering to cease then we have to hear what Jesus said. And what's at stake in that? I often have conversations with other female clergy, and they say things like, oh my gosh, my congregation was so upset I wore open-toed shoes. Really? (laughs) Or they got all upset one day because I had a a dress on, but I didn't have pantyhose on. Huh. I said, you know, it's really weird. Nobody ever has those conversations with me. And my friend goes, yeah, because you invite that kind of interaction. We can do that. No one's ever done that. I mean, who knows what will happen at the door. Um, But people in fashion houses shouldn't throw stones. But if we want to go toe-to-toe, we can do that. But you know what I realized the more that I reflected on that? Is that that's not important. We're not going to have discussions about my footwear. I mean, we can have discussions about my footwear. But do we not have bigger things to do than discuss my footwear? Do we not have more important things to engage in conversation and dialogue about than what I'm wearing on my legs. I give thanks that Crozet United Methodist Church is a church where we will have deep conversations about theology and scripture and doctrine, that we will have discussions about what missions and ministries we should be engaged in and how we should fund them and where we should be directing our gifts and our tithes. I rejoice that we have those those discussions I celebrate that we don't have meaningless ones that are simply made to hurt. We don't have those conversations here. And my advice to some of my female clergy friends were, I'm going to come guest preach at your church, and they're never going to complain about your open toe shoes again. <laughs> Let me come to your church. They will be so glad when I leave. We should never have complained about you. We are sorry. But that's the difference. In the body of Christ, we can put up with superfluous and superficial things. We can grant grace for those. Because what is really important is not what's on your feet, what's on your back. It's what's in your heart. And that's where we look. We look in the heart. And when you're turning back after someone has hurt you, try not to see the anger and the violence that you're seeing projected. Look for that heart. That's why when we turn our eyes to the hills and we look to the Lord, God equips us to see deeper within. God allows us to turn back and see for a moment, this is my beloved child in whom I want to be well-pleased. But this child is aching and hurting and lashing out, and we need to know why. And sometimes you just have to give somebody a moment to name their pain and suffering. Sometimes you just have to give them your full attention and your presence, just like God gives to every single one of us every time we ask. And it starts with our willingness to not lash out and seek vengeance, not to seek their eye, not to swipe back at their cheek, but instead to let the Holy Spirit turn us to a new orientation. Help us to see the person and not the offense. Help us to see our Lord and not what we want God to do. Because there are days where you're going to think to yourself, God should bring back smiting today. Today, I got a list. God, you can start here and work your way down. But that's not what it's about in Christendom. Here, it is about the grace. From the moment we wake up to the moment we go to bed, It is about grace for every interaction, no matter how beautiful and blessed, to how vicious and sinful. We are people who not only invoke that word, we live it out. And if our first response is to annihilate, then we are failing Jesus Christ. Because Jesus' first response was never to annihilate us. It was to give us everything to not only give us all the grace that we could ever want, but then just when we thought God couldn't give us any more, God gave us eternal life to celebrate it. And that is what Jesus was trying to tell us, not only here, but with every breath in his body, that there is more than enough grace, not just for us, but for all of us. And may it be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.